Well, good morning, and uh, welcome to Veritas. Uh, if you're new with us, my name is Ryan. Uh, I serve here as one of the pastors, and I just want to welcome you and let you know how grateful we are uh, that you're here this morning. Uh, well, if you've got your Bible, you can open up to Luke chapter 22, the Gospel of Luke chapter 22. If you don't have a Bible, uh, good news, we've got one for you. Uh, you can just kind of raise your hand or flag down one of the ushers back there, and we've got some hardback black ones on that table, uh, and you can take that and keep that. That Bible is our gift to you uh, as a church. But Luke chapter 22, we are, uh, uh, for the next four weeks, we are pressing pause in our series through the book of Genesis to spend four weeks uh, really looking at the events uh, around Good Friday and Easter, the most significant weekend in all of human history when Jesus dies on a Roman cross and then rises from the dead three days later. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to look at four scenes uh, it's from the end of, of Luke's gospel, uh, the table, the cross, the tomb, and the road. Uh, next week, we're going to look at the cross where Jesus dies for our sins in our place as a substitute for us. On Easter Sunday, we're going to celebrate the empty tomb, how Jesus is alive and risen from the dead and victorious over sin and death uh, even now at this very moment. Uh, and then the week after that, we're going to be on the road to Emmaus where Jesus shows us as he tells his disciples how the entire Bible, Old and New Testaments, is all about him. Uh, but this morning, we're going to kick that off by looking at the table, when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. And so we're going to look at that and see why that's such good news for us. And so if you've made it to Luke chapter 22, let's look at this together, the first 23 verses of the chapter. And so starting in verse 1, the very word of God to us this morning, it speaks to us like this. It says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, that's Jesus, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, 
but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they begin to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. And so this uh, passage breaks down really well into three scenes. We see uh, in here the, the preparations for the betrayal, the preparations for the Passover, and then finally the preparations uh, for the table. And we'll move a little bit quicker through uh, the first two. But as we come to Luke chapter 22, we're really stepping into Luke's gospel in the last week uh, of Jesus' ministry. And uh, they're in Jerusalem, and the heat has really turned up on Jesus because of his teachings to the people and his claims about himself. Uh, but notice that Luke tells us that this is taking place during the feast of the Passover, the biggest event uh, on the Jewish calendar. And so Jerusalem would have been packed full of people. And so while the chief priests and the officials, they want to find a way to get rid of Jesus because of how popular he is with the people uh, and how much the people love his teachings, uh, they're not just going to be able to come out and do that. They've got to find the right opportunity uh, and Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, ends up providing that for him, uh, for them. Uh, verse 3 tells us that Satan entered into Judas. Now, I think it's important for us to know that when it says this, this does not mean that Satan possessed Judas in such a way that Judas was not responsible uh, for his betrayal of Jesus. Look, Satan never made Judas, and he never makes you and I sin. Uh, he doesn't have that power. Uh, what we see instead throughout the Gospels is Judas continually giving himself over to sin, making small compromise after small compromise that prepared him uh, for this betrayal. Like, Judas was already looking for an opportunity to do something like this before Satan entered into him. He was greedy. He wanted money. Like, Satan was looking for a willing participant to participate in his evil plan, and Judas was happy to be a willing vessel for that. And so Judas goes to the chief priests and to the religious leaders and the officers uh, and begins to talk with them about how he can betray Jesus to them and hand Jesus over to them. Now, I think there are two things we see in this. Uh, one, uh, Judas was not extraordinary in this, and I, I think that's a warning for us. Uh, hopefully you notice as we read through the passage in verse 21 when Jesus says, "...the hand of him who betrays me is with me on this table." Uh, the disciples don't, don't all turn in unison to Judas at once and be like, Judas, he's talking about Judas. It's definitely going to be Judas. We hate that guy. Judas is the worst. Like, no, they don't do that, right? They don't do that at all. That's not what happens at all. Instead, they start questioning each other and asking each other, like, could it be me? Could it be you? Who's going to do this? And so look, here's what we can gather from this. We know that Judas did not stick out like a sore thumb from the rest of the disciples. He, he was not walking around Jerusalem with devil horns sticking out of his head. I, I know that we kind of all have this image of Judas as this kind of classic comic book villain, but he's just not. That's not how they saw him. I mean, they, the disciples put him in charge of the money, which means they thought that he was trustworthy. Like, Judas looked great on the outside, but yet still. He betrayed Jesus. And so listen, I think this is a warning for us because who is in closer proximity to Jesus than Judas? I mean, he was with him for three years nonstop. He heard all the best sermons. He received all the best teachings. He saw all of Jesus' miracles, all of Jesus' compassion, and yet he still did not believe in him. He still did not love him. He still did not trust him, and he still ended up betraying him. And so look, you can go to church 
every Sunday. You can go to every Bible study and every event. You can be kind of a model parent and employee that earns the respect of everyone else around you that everybody else looks up to, and absolutely none of that is going to save you. None of that will make you right with God. Only faith in Jesus, only trusting him and giving yourself to him. Like being close to Jesus is not enough to be saved by Jesus. You have to trust him. And so I think we all need to be asking ourselves the question, where am I laying the seeds of betrayal to Jesus in my own heart even now? Where am I making these small compromises that I'm justifying is really not that big of a deal? Where am I looking at other things in my life and saying, that's better than Jesus, I'm just not going to trust you there, Jesus, even if you look great everywhere else in your life? Like Judas did not wake up one day and decide to just betray Jesus out of the blue. No, it was a pattern of small compromise after small compromise and giving himself over to sin that eventually led him to this. And so I I think this is a warning to us, but I also think that this is just a beautiful picture of just how in control Jesus is on this weekend. Because all throughout this passage are fulfillments of earlier scripture. Uh, When it tells us in verse 3 that Judas goes to uh, the the chief priests and the officers and confers with them about how he might betray Jesus to them, we should hear echoes of Psalm chapter 2, which says that the kings of the earth and the rulers of the earth, they set themselves and they took counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ about how they might break out from under his rule but, but that's ultimately foolish. It's not going to work. They're not going to be able to break out from under his rule, just like Psalm 2 prophesies. Not only that, even Judas's betrayal has been specifically foretold in the Scriptures. Uh, in verse 21, when Jesus says, The hand of him who is with me, of him who betrays me, is with me on the table, uh, we should hear Jesus alluding back to Psalm 41, verse 9, which says, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Like, Jesus knows what is going to happen to him on this weekend before it happens. He is the one who uh, spoke this prophecy out through David all the way back in the Psalms. And and so listen, with this, I, I think Luke is actually teaching us how to read our Bibles a little bit here. I think we should see Psalms as prophecies uh, telling us what Jesus is going to do for us when he comes to earth and lives them out. Like Jesus is the one who spoke out these prophecies through the human authors in the Psalms, giving us a picture of what he's going to do to save us. It's as if he was writing himself a script that he then came to earth and lived out. He came and played it out. This is why in a few weeks when we have our Good Friday gathering, we're just going to read a few psalms uh, that Jesus either takes on his lips while he's hanging on the cross or that are quoted or alluded to about him while he's hanging on the cross. Uh, by, By doing that, by taking the words of these psalms on his lips, Jesus is saying these words, this psalm is about me. He's giving us these as a gift to deeper understand what he is doing for us and the salvation he's accomplishing for us and to show us just how in control of this situation that he is. I mean, even the betrayal of Judas is serving his plan of salvation. 
He's in control, and I think you continue to see this in the next scene in the passage as he begins to make preparations for the Passover. And so Jesus tells Peter and John to go into the city and make preparations for the Passover. And he tells them that when they get into the city, they'll meet a man carrying a jar of water. Uh, They should follow that man into the house of his master, and then they should ask that master and tell the master, hey, uh, the teacher needs your guest room tonight. And Jesus says, he's going to give it to you uh, and then prepare the Passover for me there. And verse 13 tells us that they do that, and it happens just as Jesus told them that it would. And so once again in this, I think we should see a picture of just how in control Jesus is as evidenced by him knowing exactly what to do to get this Passover meal ready. Like, no one is taking him out of control on this weekend. He is not a passive bystander. He's an active agent. No one takes his life from him. He freely lays it down by his own choice. He is the one that is orchestrating all of these different things to fulfill these promises and these prophecies that he spoke out thousands of years before this moment because he's in absolute control. And listen, I think this should really encourage us because if Jesus is still in control on the darkest weekend of all of human history— And then surely he's in control of your life as well. Surely you have every reason to trust him. And we just continue to see this as the passage moves on into the next scene and Jesus begins to make preparations for the table. And so here at this table, when they take this Passover meal, I think there's three things that Jesus is doing at this table. Uh, Jesus is, one, establishing the new covenant, Uh, He is giving us a new story to live into, uh, and he's also giving us, he's instituting for us a new meal. And so first, this new covenant. Look back at verse 20 uh, at what he says while he's at this table. It says, and likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so by Jesus Uh, doing this in the context of the Passover and and using these words, new covenant, Jesus is uh, alluding back to what is going on during the Passover, and he's giving us the context to help us understand what his death means. Uh, The whole reason that the Israelites celebrated the Passover is because of what God did for them in Egypt during the Exodus. They were enslaved to the Egyptians, and so God brought them out of slavery and set them free with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. Uh, He brought plagues on the Egyptians until the Egyptians let his people go free, and the final plague uh, was the death of every firstborn son in the land. But God provided a way for the firstborn sons in the land to not die, to not to be spared. He said, anybody who slaughters a lamb and then rubs its blood over uh, the doorpost over their house, when the destroying angel comes through and passes through the land, uh, the firstborn son in that house will be spared. It will be protected by the blood of the lamb. And so God does this. He sets his people free, and the people begin to journey towards the promised land, and God is with them in the wilderness. He feeds them with manna from heaven and with water from a rock. He quenches their thirst, and he's present with them, and he brings them into the promised land. But as they journey into the wilderness, they come to Mount Sinai, and on Mount Sinai, God enters into a covenant with them, into a relationship with them, so that he would be their God, and they would be his people. 
Uh, and because we are sinners, uh, this covenant was also established with the blood of a lamb. Listen to Exodus chapter 24, verse 8, when God is instituting this covenant and, and how Jesus is alluding back to this. It says, And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. And so by alluding back to this, I think Jesus is really picking up on something we see from the very first pages of the Scriptures. From the very first pages of the Scriptures, we see that God is a good, a holy, and a loving God. But for God to be a good, holy, and loving God, God has to judge and punish and deal with sin. I mean, we saw a few weeks ago in Genesis chapter 34, uh, if God just kind of looks at all the wickedness that we perpetuate on the world and on each other, and he just kind of throws up his hands and says, whatever, you guys do what you want. I don't care about it. He's not a good God. He's not a God of love. He's not a holy God. But because that is who God is, he does judge and punish and deal with sin. But because God is a good and holy and loving God, in, in the midst of punishing sin, he also wants to have relationship, wants to have fellowship with his people, wants to make a way for them to dwell with him again. And so what we see God doing throughout the Old Testament is entering into covenant, entering into relationship with his people. And as part of this old covenant that, that God enters into with his people, he institutes the sacrificial system for them uh, as a way to make atonement uh, for their sins. The, the sacrificial system was not about the people paying God back for their sins. It was about God providing the sacrifice, about God making a way for his people to remain in right fellowship with him. And so God institutes this sacrificial system, uh, and the system he sets up is life for life. And so what would happen is if you sinned, you could bring a, a, a bull or a goat to the priest, and the priest would sacrifice that bull or goat in your place, and it would pay the cost for your sin. Like, its blood would be shed instead of yours. It would die so that you could live. Um, but, but what we see as we walk through the Old Testament is that these sacrifices weren't actually paying for sins, weren't actually dealing with sins, because the people had to come back and do this all over again, all the time, constantly, year after year after year. Uh, maybe thinking about it like this will help. Let me borrow an illustration. But we, we, I think we can think of the sacrificial system and these sacrifices uh, in a way really similar to a credit card. And so uh, with a credit card, you can think of it as every time the people of God are offering these sacrifices, uh, it's as if they're swiping their credit card and charging a credit against their account. Uh, and just like a, with a credit card, you can make a real purchase even though a credit card isn't a real payment. You know what I mean? And so imagine that you've got a credit card that's got like a $10,000 a month limit on it. Uh, if you have that, uh, what you could do after we're done here is you could go out and you could go to Sam's Club or to Walmart and you could go buy one of those like 85-inch 4K TVs that cost like three or four grand uh, and you could buy it with your credit card and they'd let you purchase it. Like they'd let you take it home today and, and by tonight you could be enjoying uh, your brand new TV and you get to enjoy that 85-inch TV all month long. But at the end of the month, when your credit card bill comes due, uh, you're going to have to find three or four grand to pay the credit card company from somewhere else uh, because paying with the credit card was a real purchase, but it wasn't a real payment. 
Right? So in the same way, the people of God are receiving real forgiveness for their sins, but these sacrifices aren't a real payment for sins. They can't truly deal with sins because the blood of bulls and goats was never going to be able to pay for sins. Something greater was needed. Something greater was needed because uh, one of the other things we see kind of running parallel to this in the Old Testament is that the people of God, these sacrifices, could not change their hearts and cause them to love God and obey. Like the people of God are constantly an unfaithful covenant partner throughout the Scriptures. I mean, even when Moses is getting this covenant and getting the law from God on top of the mountain on Mount Sinai, they are at the base of the mountain worshiping the golden calf. It's as if they commit adultery on their wedding night. And it's not like things get any better from there. They're constantly unfaithful. They constantly refuse to obey. They constantly go after other gods and worship idols. The people of God are so unfaithful that God eventually has to send them into exile as a judgment on them for their sin. Like God wants to have his people, wants to have friendship and relationship and communion with them. He wants to have his people for himself, but his people just do not. But, but while the people of God are in exile, God makes this promise through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 31 that the day is coming uh, when God will make a new covenant, not like the covenant he made with the people on Mount Sinai, the covenant that they broke and weren't able to obey and to keep. He says under this covenant, God won't just write his law on tablets of stone. He will write it on our hearts so that we really will be able to love and obey him. He says, everyone that's in this covenant will truly know the Lord, and everyone in this covenant will have their sins completely forgiven. God says he will remember their sins no more. And so this is the promise God gives, but as the Old Testament ends, we find ourselves still in exile, still waiting for God to fulfill this promise and bring the new covenant. Look, and that's what Jesus just said he is bringing on this night. When he takes this bread and he says, this is my body, and when he takes this cup and says, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you, he is saying the promise is finally coming true in him. And listen to what this means for us. Hebrews chapter 10, quoting from Jeremiah, it says, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. No longer any offering for sin. No sin left for us to pay. No sacrifice that needs to be made because Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. As Jesus takes these elements on this night and he says, this is my body, this is my blood, he is showing us that through what he will do on this weekend, all of our sins, past, present, and future, will be fully, freely, and forever forgiven because of his work. So there would be nothing left for us to pay. There would be nothing left that you and I owe. 
Because of his work on the cross, we will be restored to friendship with him and we will be given the ability to obey and to return his love because part of this new covenant is Jesus pouring out his Holy Spirit on us to come live inside of us forever. Like this is what the death of Jesus means for us. He comes to do this and comes to establish this. And so look, if you are trusting in Jesus, you have no wrath from God hanging over your head any longer. No judgment left that you will ever face, both now and in the future. No sins of your own left to pay for. None. Like the triune God is your friend because of what he did for you and what he accomplished for you on this weekend through Jesus. This is what we have in Jesus. This is what Jesus is doing for us. He's establishing this new covenant, but not only is he establishing this new covenant, he's also giving us a new story to live into. By doing this in the context of the Passover, and Luke continually highlighting this, that this is taking place during the Passover, that this meal that they are having is a Passover meal, uh, Luke's trying to put this in context so that we can understand what's going on here. I know that for most of us, when we read all of these references to Passover, uh, it didn't really jump out at us. It's not that significant to us, but, but look, to the people of God, this would have been like the event for them. I mean, this is Christmas, 4th of July, uh, Thanksgiving, your birthday, whatever holiday you want to throw in there, kind of all wrapped up into one. Maybe thinking about it like this would help. I've used this before, but uh, if you're newer with us, um, I'm from Oklahoma, and uh, one of the kind of weird and crazy things about Oklahoma history uh, is something called the land run. And so on April 22nd, uh, 1889, 18 years before Oklahoma officially became a state, uh, the government basically declared that a bunch of Native American land was kind of just free for the taking, and it would be first come, first serve. And so on this day, people lined up at kind of the starting line, and at noon, the gun went off, and, and basically what happened is everybody just got to kind of run on foot or on horseback and try to go to uh, all these plots of land and stake out their plot of land, uh, and they would have this land as their own. And it was apparently like a pretty crazy thing, uh, a whole lot of fights, I think some murders in there, like super crazy deal. But I, I think the weirdest thing about it to me uh, is how much uh, we emphasize this event as Oklahomans. Like one of our college teams, the University of Oklahoma, the mascot is the Sooners, and Sooners were people who came to the land run early and actually went out and kind of cheated uh, and went to these plots of land and hid out so that when the gun went off, they could kind of just step out and plant their flag and say, this is my plot of land. Uh, we chant Boomer Sooner at, at OU games, and uh, Boomers, uh, at that time, they weren't out-of-touch parents. Uh, they were people that uh, came to the land run uh, to get these new plots of land and actually waited for the starting gun and didn't cheat. So that's kind of a weird oxymoron with that, like, OU, they're kind of cheaters, but not really. Uh, anyways... Uh, not only that, uh, our, our, our minor league baseball team used to be called the 89ers for people that were at the land run in 1889. But I think the weirdest thing we do about this is uh, every year growing up in elementary school, uh, on April 22nd, we would have land run day. 
And so on April 22nd, every year, we would get out of school the entire day to go to a park and kind of recreate the land run and learn about its history without all the fights and the murders, of course. Uh, And so we would go and do this and go recreate the land run. And uh, that's weird, right? Like, what other state does that? There's no land run day in Nebraska or New York. I mean, that's weird. And so this event and all the ways we work to kind of remember this event as Oklahomans, it really does kind of form and shape us as a people. It really kind of does bleed into our ethos as a people. It's kind of this ethos of, man, uh, we're blue collar. We work harder than you. We really do belong. We really do have a place at the table. Like Oklahoma City, it's a legitimate big city that can compete with the other big cities. We can have a professional sports team. Like we really do belong. But like this event and the ways we remember it, it really does kind of form and shape us as a people uh, and affect our identity. Look, all of that, that is nothing compared to what the Passover would have meant to the Jewish people. I mean, God even reorganized the Israelites' calendar around the Passover so that they would always celebrate the Passover during the first month of the new year so that they would kick off the new year every year being reminded of their origin story, being reminded of what God did to save them out of slavery to Egypt and to make them a people. They would celebrate the Passover every year to be formed deeper into this story, to be able to say, we are the people that the Lord loves. We are the people that the Lord redeemed and took out of slavery to Egypt. We are the people that the Lord chose for himself. We are the people that God uh, fed in the wilderness and split the Red Sea so that we could cross on dry ground. This is who we are. And they take it to celebrate this and form them into a people uh, more and more every year. And so Jesus, as he takes these elements on on this night and applies them to himself, uh, he's fulfilling this Passover. And in fulfilling it, he's actually transforming it. He's saying, this uh, bread, this uh, cup, it's all about me, the Passover, the Exodus. It was always pointing to me. It was always all about me. This is what he's saying as he takes these elements. He's giving it, and in doing this, by doing this, Jesus is giving us a new story to live into. He's giving us the opportunity uh, to live into this new story because, look, this is our story. This is our journey. This is the story and the place we find ourselves on. The New Testament tells us that we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and that we are on an exodus, that we have been set free from our slavery to sin and death, and that we are on a journey to the true promised land of the new heavens and the new earth. And that while we journey, we are in the wilderness, and we're called to trust God to bring us into that true rest of the true promised land. Uh, And while we journey in the wilderness, God has not left us on the way, just like he was present with the Israelites in the cloud and uh, fed them with manna from heaven and water from a rock. Jesus is present with us at this table where he gives us this meal to nourish and strengthen us and strengthen our faith on the journey. He gives us this new meal by taking these elements and applying them to himself and instituting this new meal at the table and saying, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus is giving us the means to be formed deeper into our origin story, to be formed deeper into who we are as a people. 
And so look, we don't celebrate the Passover every year any longer. Instead, uh, because Jesus is the true Passover lamb who has been sacrificed for us. Instead, we come to the table every week to celebrate the Lord's death for us and proclaim what it means. We come to the table every week to be formed into this story, to be able to say, we are the people that Jesus loves. We are the people that Jesus died for. We are the people that Jesus redeemed and set free from slavery. We are the people that Jesus chose for himself. All of our sins have been paid for by his blood, and we have been set free. This is what we get to proclaim every week as we come to the table. And so I know many of you have wondered and you've asked why we take the Lord's Supper every week. We take the Lord's Supper every week because it is a gift of grace that Jesus gives us to set the gospel before our eyes each week, to to taste and see the goodness of what he did for us, how he died for us so that we could live with him forever. And this meal that we take, it explains what Jesus' death means for us. It gives us the context to understand because by tearing this body bread, uh, bread apart, Jesus is saying, this is what's going to happen to my body. By pouring out this cup, he's saying, this is what's going to happen to my blood for you. And look, it's this. It's Jesus' death and resurrection. It's his broken body, his shed blood, and his empty tomb that gives us life as a people. And so look, every week, all throughout the week, we are being confronted with different stories, rival stories about what's really true and what the good life is and what we should give our lives to and what we should pursue if we want to flourish. The Lord's Supper is a gift of grace that we get to do every week to come back and reorient ourselves to the true story of what's really true and what Jesus has done for us as a people. It's a grace that Jesus gives us to reorient us. And Jesus gives us these visible symbols, visual symbols that we are able to see and these material symbols that we're able to taste and touch because we are not just brains on a stick. Like we are formed by our habits and what we give ourselves to just as much as by what we think about. And so the habit of getting our eye, getting the gospel before our eyes and on our taste buds each and every week, and it really does form and shape us as a people deeper into the good news of Jesus. And we really do believe that Jesus is present with us through his spirit in a special way when we come together and we take this meal together as a church. We really do believe that Jesus, in his grace, he uses this meal and the gospel that it proclaims to strengthen our faith and deepen our faith in him, our communion with him, uh, our uh, relationship with him as we journey through the wilderness. And and so we take the supper each and every week because I don't know about you, um, but I'll take as much gospel as I can get, won't you? Like, I think that's just a pretty good formula to live by. More gospel is always better than less gospel. And so we come every week uh, to take the Lord's Supper, to borrow a phrase. Uh, we do that not to, uh, not to show Jesus how serious we are about him, but to be freshly shocked at just how serious Jesus is about us. Not to show Jesus how faithful we are to him, but to be freshly amazed that Jesus would be this faithful towards us. We do it to celebrate the gospel. Look, I need that every week, and I know that you do as well. 
This is a gift of grace that Jesus gives us in our journey through the wilderness to nourish and sustain us so that whatever else may be happening in our lives, whatever else may be going on in our world, we can come together each week and be reminded and know that what is most true about our lives and our stories is that Jesus loves us, Jesus has died for us, Jesus is with us, Jesus will not quit on us, and he will not abandon us along the way. That's what we get to do in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a gift to deepen our communion with Jesus, but not only is that a gift that Jesus gives us, the Lord's Supper is also a gift to deepen and strengthen our relationship and our unity together with one another as a church. Uh, We're going to cover this more uh, in the fall when we walk through 1 Corinthians. Uh, But in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about the Lord's Supper, and he talks about how some people in the church in Corinth were taking the Lord's Supper uh, in an unworthy manner. And if you grew up in church, you probably thought that meant what I did, uh, that those people had sinned a lot that week and they needed to repent of all of that before they took the Lord's Supper as a way to kind of make themselves worthy to take the Lord's Supper. Uh, and so, and I remember the few times a year we would take the Lord's Supper growing up, it was always this really solemn occasion because we were supposed to kind of think about and confess and repent of every known sin we had in our lives if we were going to make ourselves ready to take the Lord's Supper. And, and while I'm not saying that that's necessarily wrong, uh, though I've got some problems with it, uh, I am saying that's not at all what Paul was talking about. Uh, Paul was talking about how the wealthier people in the church would come to the gathering early and would eat all the bread and would drink all the wine and, and would humiliate the poorer people in the church who had nothing, which was a denial of the gospel. A denial of the fact that the cross has leveled the playing field and has made us all one and that what is most important in the church and what unites us together as a family uh, is not how much money you make or how much status you have in the world or how important your job is, but whether or not your sins have been paid for by Jesus' blood. And so, look, we get to uh, take the Lord's Supper together, and as we do that, it deepens our unity and our uh, fellowship with one another because it proclaims the gospel that what is most important here and what unites us together as a family is not what you do, it's not how old you are, it's not how much money you make, it's not anything else. It's that Jesus has died for our sins and has made us a family. Because Jesus has died to bring us together, we are brothers and sisters. We are a family. That's why we say that this is a family meal, because it is. And so listen, a real simple way to apply this is just to live into this reality, to live into the realities that the gospel and the Lord's Supper proclaims. Don't let political affiliations or hobbies or anything else get in the way and become more important to you than the unity that we share together in Jesus. Listen, if you are a follower of Jesus and you vote Republican, you have more in common with a follower of Jesus in this church who votes Democrat than you do with a Republican who doesn't follow Jesus and vice versa. And so listen, if you find more camaraderie uh, with people who share your vote than with people who share your Savior, it's probably a good indication that something along the way has gotten out of whack in your life. If you find yourself more jazzed up to talk about the latest talking points you heard on talk radio or Fox News or CNN, it's probably a pretty good indication that your priorities have gotten out of line and out of alignment somewhere along the way. 
Because the Lord's Supper is a gift that Jesus gives us to every week get to step back in and reorient ourselves to the true story of who he is and what he's doing among us as a people. To get to every week, take this meal and say, we are the people that Jesus loves. We are the people that Jesus chose and for himself and died for. We are the people that Jesus redeemed and has set free. We are the people that the risen Jesus is present with right now through his spirit. And we are the people that Jesus has made into a family. We are the family of God through the work of Jesus. And so let's be the family that we already are in Jesus. And let's celebrate God's grace at the table now. I'm going to pray for us and then we will. God, thank you for your word and for the good news uh, that your table proclaims. That though we are sinners who deserve to die and to perish and to be separated from you because of our sin, God, you have made a way. You have made a way for us to be right with you. You have made a way for us to be forgiven and you have made a way for us to be your friends. God, you've united us to yourself through Jesus, but not only have you united us to yourself, you've united us to one another. And so, God, do this among us. Please, as we take this meal, deepen our unity and communion with you, Jesus, but deepen our unity and communion with one another here in the church together as well. Jesus, would you help us to live into the realities that your gospel creates, that we are one, that we've been made a family, that the cross has leveled the playing field. Jesus, do it among us, even now, as we come to your table. Thank you for the gift of grace that you give us uh, to get to come to your table and to get to share in this meal as brothers and sisters that you have died for and you have uh, reconciled with your blood. Jesus, thank you. We're so grateful for the work of what you've done for us to save us. Help us to celebrate it now in your name. Amen.